0: listening to seeing and believing a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen i'm kevin mcclinathan
1: and i'm sarah welch larson
0: i okay this is the weirdest thing but i feel like i'm just having a weird sense of danger like i feel like i've done this before hundreds of times you've
1: said these words before maybe 355 times Uh,
0: i i mean i can't put that fine of a point but it just feels like i've walked this path In the past. (laughs) We are going to be reaching back into the past with this week's episode, the Memories episode of Seeing and Believing. First up, we're going to be talking about James Gray's memoir ish film about his childhood in 1980s New York, Armageddon Time.
1: And then we're going to be following that up with another slightly more recursive trip into memories. For the watch list, we're discussing Andrei Tarkovsky's Mirror.
0: And I feel like this is the point where I would say something else, but I can't quite remember it. Uh, Can you help me out here, Sarah?
1: I think we'll probably figure it out on episode 356 of Seeing and Believing. The United States stands for an idea whose time is now. Ronald Reagan will win tonight. What a schmuck.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I want to be an artist when I grow up You're going to be an artist if you want to be Nothing's going to stop you You're going to college He'll have dinner with kings if he plays his cards right mm. I really like your stickers My stepbrother gave them to me He's in the air force That's so cool <laughs> How dare you A it to you Well you're not to associate with him again What do you mean? Why? I think you know what I mean we're here on episode 356 of Seeing and Believing, the the Memories uh, mm-hmm. episode, and I know Sarah, you've only been a formal part of the show for the past year, so I'm I'm hoping that the memories so far are, are okay. You don't you know wake up in a cold sweat at night remembering some horrible Seeing and Believing experience or anything like that.
1: Only when I say something dumb on the podcast, which I hope is few and far between.
0: I I mean I sympathize. I also have have those moments where you just sort of like. Just suddenly wince out of nowhere because you remember an embarrassing thing that happened. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've I've got my fair share of those immortalized forever on on the internet (laughs) thanks to this podcast. So um, you know, it's it's something to get used to. Definitely. Um, So, like I mentioned, listeners, this is going to be kind of the walk down memory lane episode. Uh, We're going to be talking about one approach to that genre I guess you could call it mm-hmm. with Andrei Tarkovsky's Mirror in our watchlist segment uh, but for now we're going to turn our attention to an Oscar season hopeful This is the next in a series of uh, deeply personal semi-autobiographical films from various filmmakers. James Gray's Armageddon Time is a reflection back on the era of his childhood, which is New York in the early 1980s. This film centers on Paul, a sixth grader from Queens and the son of second-generation Jewish immigrants, as he begins to discover both his dreams for the future and the cold, harder edges of the American dream. That latter conflict is explored through Paul's friendship with Johnny, a black classmate whose own future is circumscribed much more harshly than Paul's, as he comes to find out. But this is also a James Gray film, which means that the theme of family is threaded throughout as well in its portrait of Paul's hardworking parents, played here by Anne Hathaway and Jeremy Strong, Mm -hmm. and his doting grandfather, played by the great Anthony Hopkins. So, Sarah, early in the film... Hopkins' grandfather is speaking with Paul, and he tells Paul that he must always remember the past. So as we get into our discussion, I kind of want to take that as a jumping-off point. How well does Paul slash James Gray take Grandpa's advice? What did you think of the way Gray remembers this past?
1: Mm, yeah. I feel complicated about it, which I suspect is how Gray feels about the past as well, which is probably why he made this movie in particular. Um, This feels like an attempt to excavate the process of assimilation into predominantly white American culture and the things that that does to the family unit generationally and then also to the other people that these characters come into contact with. There's a thread of coming to understand that coming to America was much more difficult for Grandpa Anthony Hopkins's character than it is for Paul to just live in it because that's the only culture that he's known. And you get the sense, and and James Gray is very good at conveying this, I think, um, you get the sense of just how hard this family has had to work in order to be considered like included and respectable people in society like Jewish people were basically rejected from American shores during World War II like we did not want them to come here um which was terrible and it it let me go back a little bit um Jewish people were were essentially like barred from entering the United States for a good portion of like the 1940s and we get the sense that this family has has had to grapple with and come to terms with the fact that they were not originally welcome here, and they are trying to make themselves more welcome by by joining the wider American culture and sort of assimilating and becoming a little bit less Jewish. They have changed their last name to Graf, which sounds a little bit less um, like a German Jewish name. And so you you get the sense that Paul's parents are very aware of the struggle that their parents had to go through in order to become accepted in the United States. And Paul doesn't really seem like he's very aware of that at all. We don't get too much of a sense that he's been told much about that, except by the stories that his grandfather tells him just before going to bed um, about the pogroms that they, they endured before they decided to come and emigrate to the United States. And I very much appreciate Gray's very delicate balancing act that he's doing here with regards to the interiority of Paul, like learning a little bit more about how the world works and the ways that he and his family are and are not welcome. What I have a harder time with is that that interiority is so closely circumscribed around Paul's head that you don't really get too much of a sense of the personhood of the other characters around him. And I don't know if that's a fundamental flaw with the story or with the way that Gray has framed it, but it seems to me that kind of the the crux of this movie is Paul's relationship with Johnny, played by Jalen Webb. And so much of the movie is focused just on Paul's interior journey that it kind of leaves Johnny behind, even as Paul is leaving Johnny behind. Paul ends up leaving the public school system to go to a private school system where Johnny is very clearly not welcome. And you get the sense from dialogue and from other characters around Paul that they kind of understand that this is how the world works in America in the early 1980s. Like there's this... Sense of people fleeing the public school system after it's being integrated to go into more private schools. Johnny is very clearly aware of this, but Paul isn't. And at the same time, Johnny feels so much like just almost a placeholder character as Paul's best friend that I had a really hard time getting a sense for who he was other than as a plot device. So I feel kind of mixed about this because the movie is very good at laying out the situation that Paul's family is in, but it isn't very good at laying out the context outside of that family if that makes sense. Did, hmm. did you get that same read?
0: Yeah, uh, memoir is so difficult, uh, especially, you know, memoirs about childhood because the person remembering has to not only deal with you know the the passage of time and the way that memory fades, but also just how to both have perspective on the events of the past while also really clearly evoking what it was like to experience them in the present. Mm. And uh, with Armageddon time, I think that gray is mostly successful, not entirely successful. Mm -hmm. Um, I share a little bit of your ambivalence with the central friendship between Paul and, and Johnny. I don't know if it's so much that Johnny doesn't feel like a, a, A full person or that he feels like a plot device so much as just that it doesn't feel to me like Gray has quite sorted out what he wants to where he wants the audience to be in relation to their their friendship. Mm -hmm. So you're right that Johnny does feel a little bit. Uh, at a a remove like we only get a certain side of him and i think that that makes sense given that this is so closely aligned with paul's point of view um it does feel to me like gray is maybe not presuming to sketch out the character of a person who he either doesn't remember all that clearly or that he never really knew all that closely Hmm. intimately uh you know when they are friends but regardless i i think you can chalk up some of the the lack of depth to Johnny's character being more just paul is a 6th grader and just isn't all that emotionally intelligent um and what we the the flatness we see is more just kind of how paul's is kind of content to skate over the surface of of that friendship without really um allowing himself to be vulnerable to Johnny and without thinking about what Johnny might be how how Johnny might be experiencing the world mm. but I do think that the maybe the the problem with it is that I don't know I, I thought a lot about the memoirs of Tobias Wolff uh while while watching this film he he wrote two memoirs uh, that I've read anyway uh This Boy's Life which was made into a movie with Leonardo DiCaprio mm. and uh a book that I think is even better than that one. They're both excellent. But uh his second memoir is called In Pharaoh's Army. It's about Wolf's experience uh in the army during the Vietnam War. Hmm. And one thing that Wolf does so well is that he is in some ways utterly merciless with his past self. He's so clear-eyed about um the the flaws and the the small cruelties that he doled out as his younger self but he also balances that with extreme compassion for his past self like he understands himself better than anyone else could in mm. those situations so that combination of cl- of lacerating clarity and extreme compassion i think is what makes those memoirs so indelible with Armageddon time i think that we get a lot of the compassion and that i think is where the film is its strongest just in the way it portrays paul and his family and just the uh, the complicated dynamics they're in mm-hmm. the lacerating clarity maybe isn't as much an evidence and i think that that's mostly with the friendship with johnny and i think that that's where the film it doesn't it's not a, a a completely compromising flaw but it does open the film up to um some criticisms just about being a little bit a little skating a little bit too much on the surface of that friendship
1: huh that's an that's interesting because i felt like the movie was very clear about how it wanted the audience to interpret that friendship and how it wanted the audience to kind of come away like feeling i think feeling complicated this is definitely a complicated movie and it doesn't feel as though james gray is trying to boil everything down into just a a right or wrong answer necessarily i think he's a smarter filmmaker than that and he's better at laying out well this is the situation on the ground and this is the context that all of these characters are operating within and it's very difficult for a child to have the moral clarity to be able to make the right decision in situations like paul finds himself in but at the same time i really felt like this movie had a very clear view of what it wanted the audience to take away from Paul's relationship with Johnny, which was that Paul is a character who is kind of trapped in the viewpoint of his family and his social situation where because he has not been made aware of what other people are living like and and what other people's lives are like, he's just not going to consider that so he's just going to take the easy way out he's going to try to skate by he's going to just go along with whatever his other friends are saying because it, it it's what's simple for him and in so doing he's going to end up um making some really bad choices about not being able to affirm the total personhood of other people if that makes sense that feels kind of abstract and i think that's probably because gray has abstracted this a little bit um but I really did feel as though Gray had a very specific viewpoint of this was what I was like as a child, and I made mistakes, and at the time I did not see a way to make my way out of those mistakes. If that makes sense, like it, it felt very clear to me.
0: I, I mean, it, it's clear in the sense that he does. There, there's just such a sense of regret suffusing this film, and that's why I, I'm, I don't dismiss it completely because I do think that gray is he is reckoning with something with this film and, and not just with one thing but a whole host of things not just his relationship with uh this childhood friend but also the way he he treated his parents the way he um sees his his brother mm-hmm. um the way that he maybe didn't say everything that he he maybe wanted to have said to his grandfather mm-hmm. um all of those things are are here i think there's there's a scene late in the film that I think is is a maybe the the biggest component of my problem with it, and that's uh, after a an encounter that Johnny and Paul have with law enforcement, um there's th- the way that that shakes out um leaves uh, Paul in a much different place than Johnny, mm. and there's a a scene with his grandfather afterward. Where uh, his sad his his sadness and uh, his conflicted feelings he expresses them and his grandfather kind of says you did what you could you did you did the best you could hmm. and it wasn't what you know you you messed up but the only thing you can do is to try again mm-hmm. and I think that that is that that's a moment I think where Gray is letting himself off the hook if not int- if not with full intent. It feels that way to the, us in the audience. It feels to me a little bit like, you know, he, he's giving himself a past, which is, to be fair, there isn't anything he can do to change the past. He can only remember it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it, that's sort of the the film's thesis. But I think that's a pro, it's a It's a problem of writing, maybe, mm-hmm. where threading that needle where he both feels the regret— And doesn't excuse it while also recognizing that the past is the past and he can, you know, we we can only move through time in one direction. Mm -hmm. I think that Gray simply just, he doesn't quite succeed in threading that needle. And because that's kind of towards the end of the film, it leaves a bad taste in the mouth, which is it's just unfortunate
1: yeah i completely agree with you about that scene and about another kind of similar scene um in which paul speaks with his father about the situation that he and johnny found themselves in and his father recognizes and acknowledges like verbally that yeah it isn't fair and it's not going to be fair and life isn't fair so you basically have to try to get by as best you can and That almost felt as though the movie was kind of imparting a little bit of an object lesson of Life Isn't Fair. And I don't know that the takeaway that Gray intended was for Johnny to be absolved. I I think it's supposed to feel a little bit more complicated and and ugly than that. Um, But I do agree with you there that that scene with Johnny's grandfather does feel a little bit too pat for what – or sorry – that scene with Paul's grandfather um, does feel a little bit too pat for what he and Johnny have gone through.
0: Right. I. I so the, the film's title, Armageddon Time, is a reference to uh, an interview, which we see in the film uh, with Ronald Reagan while Reagan was running for his first term. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in that interview, Reagan says that Uh, The reason that he's running for president is that the current generation is sort of living under the shadow of Armageddon. And, you know, Reagan supposedly wants to uh, address that in some ways. And I I think that that's Gray kind of indicating that there's this sense throughout the picture that Paul's family is—they feel the— the, the pressures of life in America kind of closing in around them, and that leads them to uh, prioritize certain things, value certain things, and act in certain ways. Um, and the great tragedy of it, as we find out, is that that leads them to say, you know, like, I got to get mine. You know, it's not fair necessarily that uh, Johnny might uh, not have the advantages you do, but, you know, those are the breaks. You got to look out for number one. Mm-hmm. and. I do. I appreciate how Gray really presents that as sort of the just, I the the cold hard lesson that it is mm-hmm. like that that people, uh, especially in in the context of you know the this time period, would be so concerned about slipping through the cracks of the American dream that they they will purposely harden their hearts against other people. Uh, in order just to save themselves. And that is very sad. I, simp- I I wish that in some of the ways that it explored that dynamic specifically with the living person of Johnny, mm-hmm. uh, it'd been a little bit, if it, again, had just thread that needle a little bit more, I, I don't know how it would change to do that. I just know that when we're watching on screen, it just, it doesn't feel like it's, all the way there like the the full tragedy of it maybe isn't isn't felt to us.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think I don't know, like it it feels like it is a it's definitely a flaw in the storytelling. It feels kind of like a fundamental flaw that you can't really take away from the story necessarily. Um and I think part of it is that Johnny's character and Johnny's situation are kind of an abstraction to Paul's entire family like you you get the sense that they're they're kind of thinking about a lot of these problems just in the abstract of oh we want our kids to be in the correct schools with the correct kind of children and they're not really thinking about what does this actually mean when I say that the public schools are going to the dogs like they're like it's, it's all
0: euphemisms when they say when mm-hmm. they say the right kind of kids or when they say that boy or when they when they talk about sending them to a private school or the public schools going downhill Mm -hmm. you know they're, they're talking about race even if they're not saying it outright
1: exactly yeah and i i think that for paul's family i'm not sure how consciously aware they are about talking about race even though they are very clearly talking about race too i think that there is a level of of denial of what you are talking about when you are willing to take that position i think and this is definitely not to absolve Paul's family at all. I don't think the movie is interested in absolving them of that either but I do think that Grey does a, a good job of sketching out how treating other people as abstract concepts and as threats is going to dehumanize them and I think part of the problem is that As he's doing that and as he's laying out that mindset so clearly very well, he also doesn't do a very good job of of drawing that contrast between Johnny, the actual person, and then Johnny, the abstract character that these other people are are thinking about. Um, And I think some of that also kind of uh, extends a little bit to the filmmaking as well. There are a couple of scenes in this movie where I just couldn't see Johnny's face particularly well, like especially at night. Um, and I think part of that is the cinematography is designed to look like it was shot in the 1980s. Like there's there's those very rich but kind of muted colors that you get in a lot of like film stock of the era. And you can't really see Johnny's face particularly well in, in some instances, which I found kind of frustrating because it feels like it's both um, – I don't know, an artifact of the time and then also a flaw of looking back on that time and being able to look back on it with clearer eyes. Mm-hmm. There's some other stuff that's going on in there that I think is technically very well done, though. There's, there's a scene where Paul and Johnny are speaking to each other through the chain link fence that surrounds Paul's new school. And when Johnny comes walking down the street and he sees Paul... He's framed, like, the camera is inside the schoolyard with Paul looking out at Johnny. And you can see the chain links in the fence very clearly against Johnny's face and against his body. And then when the camera shifts perspective to Paul talking, you can see Paul's face completely clearly, not interrupted by the chain link fence at all. It's very blurry around his face. And you get the sense that he is also kind of circumscribed by certain ideals that society is placing on him, but they're not as tight around him as they are around Johnny. And that's a beautiful piece of, of nonverbal just like craft that the the movie is doing that gives you a very good sense of where both of these boys are in society and where they're stuck or not stuck. And so I do want to acknowledge that even as I think there are some fundamental flaws in the filmmaking here too. I,
0: I'm, I'm glad you brought up that uh, the, the way that Gray uses shot reverse shot and the, just the way he frames that conversation I think is just tremendous and probably one of the stronger scenes in the entire film not just for the the framing but also the writing It's and, and in the performing as well Jalen Webb as Johnny it's pretty clear that he gets it like mm-hmm. he knows why Paul is suddenly at the all white private school he knows why Paul's sort of A little bit less willing to you know like hang out like talk to him for an extended period of time like Mm -hmm. even though that's not really um named clearly in the dialogue in in webb's performance you can kind of sense that he he knows what it is he's just trying not to let on that he knows Mm -hmm. and i think that that's kind of a, a credit for uh the performances here i think even where maybe the, the screenplay isn't threading that needle that I was talking about earlier with as much elegance. I do think that to some extent, the performances uh, do kind of save it. I really like... Um, sorry. I really like Banks Rapetta as Paul. He's really great. Jalen Webb's very good. Um, Anne Hathaway, I oh. think, is so good as as a mother who's just... There, there's something really perceptive i think that gray does in his portrayal of the parents in that they they both they they both love their children very 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 much but they're also unable to keep themselves from placing that love on their children almost like a burden mm-hmm. there's a a scene where uh hathaway is um speaking with uh Rapetta as paul about um you know, the the grandfather is ailing. And she she kind of puts her hands on his face and she says, you're my little angel. I love you so much. And you can see yeah, Gray's camera stays on Paul. You can see that expression of sincere, very warm emotion just settling on Paul like a weight. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, it, it's not like it's anyone's fault. It's not like she's doing anything wrong. It's just very perceptive about the way that some families work. And I think- in those moments this film really is is strong and achieves its full potential and i that, that's why i'm hesitant to dismiss it outright because there's so much that would be lost <laughs> to just sh- shunt this movie aside and i think moments like that are just so delicate and clear and exactly what i was what i was hoping for a deeply personal film from the director james gray
1: absolutely yeah and i mean other individual like interactions between the different characters within this family too. Like there's a moment when Jeremy Strong as the father is, is trying to fix some appliance in the house and Anthony Hopkins is like able to point something out to him and you kind of get a sense of the interplay between the two of them and you, you can feel the level of Love coming from Anthony Hopkins and the respect coming off of Jeremy Strong in a way where neither of these men would ever speak about their feelings with each other at all, but you can still feel that in the way that they talk to each other. I think there are just so many good, strong interpersonal relationships where – I mean – Every single family has is made up of a ton of different people, and everybody has a completely different relationship with every single other person. It's, it's more of a web rather than like a line or a chain of relationships. And this movie does get at that very, very beautifully. And I think some of that comes from the direction and some of that comes from the performance work. And I do want to acknowledge it is very good. I don't think that this is a bad movie. I just think that it is it's a good movie with that very strong flaw in it that makes me not really—I don't know—like I don't love it. <laughs> I want to love it, and yet at the same time, there's that one piece in there where I just—I—I I can't quite get around that myopia. I guess if that makes sense.
0: Do, do you think that? So I, I mentioned the the title um, earlier, and and kind of the the sense that Gray's almost trying to portray a tragedy here like the a tragedy of of the american dream (laughs) um i'm curious to know like i i think that that's um a successful part of the project for the most part i think he succeeds in portraying that in broad strokes even if there are some flaws in it but i'm curious to know your thoughts like do you think that that that's borne out for you as well Or, or do you think that this is do you think it succeeds at sort of portraying societal dynamics with the same success that portrays familial dynamics.
1: For the most part, yeah. Um, I don't know, like towards the end as as Paul and Johnny's relationship plays out, I almost got the sense of um, this being kind of a Greek tragedy where you know where this is going to go and it feels kind of inevitable just based on the world that these two characters inhabit and the way both of them behave. And I think Johnny knows where it's going to go. And I think part of the tragedy is that Paul doesn't Paul has that hubris of thinking that he is able to overcome his situation in life because he is naive enough that he doesn't understand how the world works and he doesn't understand what the world is like for his friend. And so I I think a lot of the fall that's felt is Paul realizing that that's the way that the world is. And I think that that tragedy would probably feel a little bit deeper if Paul had felt that more for Johnny. But again, he's he's a sixth grader. He's not going to understand this. So some of that comes from what James Gray is doing here in, in looking back and trying to come to grips and come to terms with this thing in his life. But he's, I don't know, it, it feels as though, like you'd said earlier, I think there is that sense of regret without that sense of fully like keeping himself on the hook entirely (laughs) (laughs) it's a reckoning but i don't know that the reckoning carries all the way through if that makes sense
0: you know the the more i think about you know johnny and and just the way the film sees him there's there's a a scene where uh we actually depart from paul's point of view for a brief moment so Mm -hmm. uh at some point uh we we learn that that johnny is sort of hiding out in in Paul's clubhouse, because uh, child protective services or, or some organization like that is is coming around to his home, and, and he's not wanting to be taken away from from his home. Um, and Paul, uh, after a conversation with Johnny, leaves to go get him uh, some some band aids because his his foot is hurt. And the camera actually stays with Johnny as Paul leaves the scene, and we get a we get to see Johnny at home with his grandmother. And I, if I'm correct, if I'm remembering correctly, that's the one time in the film where we're seeing something that Paul has not been privy to. Paul has no way of knowing what that exchange was like. Um, And yet it's not the first time in the film where we've seen Paul imagine something that Mm. did not actually happen. Mm. And I'm going back and forth about how Gray intends that scene, whether it's, a departure from the point of view for us to enter imaginatively into something that actually happened for another character or whether we're just seeing another constructed reality that Paul has, has created to soothe some part of himself or to to feed some some sort of fantasy that he needs it's
1: a good question um and i don't know that i could tell you the difference between either of those and i suspect that that partly has to do with the way that johnny's character is drawn in this movie I, Mm. i think if i had a better sense of who he was as a person i would be able to tell you more clearly if this was paul's imagined version of johnny or if this is actually johnny and because i don't really fully know who johnny is and because i Suspect the movie also doesn't really fully know who Johnny is. I don't know that I could tell you the difference.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I would probably have to see the film again to to fully digest that scene and and come down on a on one side or the other for myself. I think I probably will. I'd be interested to see this again, hmm. um, to see if it's if it's if its edges, um, become more problematic for me on a second viewing or. Or whether uh, kind of it all clicks into place, because that's happened to me with a gray film, with Gray's films before. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if I'll have a similar experience with Armageddon Time. Possibly. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you get a chance to see Armageddon Time, it is being released in theaters this weekend, so you'll have a chance to see for yourself what it's all about and form your own thoughts about the way this film uh, treats its characters and its memories. So we, of course, would love to hear your thoughts. Once you do do that, you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter. We're going to continue further down memory lane with the second half of this episode where we talk about Tarkovsky's Mirror. That's going to be a good discussion. Don't go anywhere. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the Launch Your Online Shop stage
0: Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. So, uh, Sarah, this is an episode I I mentioned in the uh, introduction to Armageddon time that we're kind of in a cultural moment right now where a lot of famous directors are sort of (laughs) reckoning with their past, Mm -hmm. uh, looking back on their origins, their childhoods, kind of thinking about their pet themes and making very personal films. So it seems appropriate that you would ask the, the question that you asked on Twitter for this week to throw out to our listeners. Yeah,
1: I wanted to know if a movie was made about your life, who would direct it? Just kind of in keeping with that theme of, of semi-memoir movies. And we heard back from a couple of people. So Ron Sturry wrote in and said, Frank Capra, because I love the positive uplifting spin he put on everything. That's how my life has been to a small extent, being lifted from a ve- being a very poor farm boy to retired and well-satisfied with his life as god has blessed me which i think frank capra probably would tell that story quite well i think
0: yeah and and always give thanks when you when you get those blessings ron thanks for writing in Mm -hmm.
1: and we also heard from chris williams who said uh he would hope that richard linklater would direct a movie about his life since it would probably be fairly wordy Um, but he follows up and says but with my luck i'd probably get Kevin (laughs) Snuff.
0: Ouch! I mean, I I totally sympathize with that too.
1: I, would you be directed by Kevin Smith or would it be by somebody else?
0: Well, I mean, so so that kind of gets into the the question at the heart of the question, I guess is is this a, a question about who should direct my life or like who who do I want to direct my life or who would actually direct my life? And I feel like that's that's kind of what Chris's answer was getting at. There is. Uh, those are two different questions, and you have to choose which one you're going to aim at when you're answering. Definitely. Um, so I would definitely not choose Kevin Smith to direct (laughs) my life. We'll just, we'll just say that. I'll leave it to maybe outside observers to say whether he would be an appropriate choice to direct my life. That feels like... You need a little bit of objectivity and distance to say that for sure. Definitely, but I, I feel like my answer to to the question, as I interpret it, would be Steven Soderbergh. Actually, mm. he's a consummate craftsman, which I I value a lot. He likes playing with genre. I'm you know a huge Lord of the Rings fan. I love me some some fantasy, some post apocalyptic sci fi. Always good. And he's aesthetically omnivorous, which I really appreciate about his films. Just he he will make. You know, shoestring indies, he'll make lean thrillers, he'll make prestige pictures, he'll make action movies. He can do it all. And Mm -hmm. he loves doing it all, and he makes them all with the same just kind of workmanlike, I'm going to make this the best exemplar of X that I want that it can possibly be. And I just I've always appreciated that about him. And I think that that sensibility is simpatico with my own, and maybe would make him a good choice.
1: That's a great pick. Um, so I guess the follow up question to that is: Would you prefer to, it to be uh, the Logan Lucky Steven Soderbergh or the Ocean's <laughs> Eleven Steven Soderbergh?
0: I, I mean, that's an easy question. Everyone who knows me says that there there is no George Clooney in me. I don't have a <laughs> an iota of Clooney's suaveness in in my in my body. So it would have to be the Logan Lucky Soderbergh.
1: <laughs> Definitely could do worse than that too. Yeah, um, I was thinking about this question. I try to ask these questions as open-endedly as possible, usually without an answer in mind for myself. So I ended up surprising myself with this. I think it would probably be Nora Ephron. Okay. Yeah, I, I feel like, I don't know, in terms of comedy versus tragedy, thinking about like comedy being more of the um, classical definition of, you know... More on the lighthearted, but not necessarily always haha funny. I feel like Nora Ephron kind of fits that. Um, A lot of talking, a lot of very deep and rich friendships, and then a lot of, I don't know, adventure isn't the right word for it, but life coming at you kind of sideways and in unexpected ways, Hmm. Um, which I I feel like, I don't know if that's a hallmark of her work, but that's something that I kind of associate at least with some of her better known things like, um, I don't know, When Harry Met Sally kind of feels like a lot of that is coming out of left field, even though it also feels inevitable at the same time. Hmm. And so looking back, hindsight being 2020, I can see where a lot of my life has gone and I can see where a lot of that came from but i wouldn't have been able to tell you in the moment that that's what was happening so i don't know feels charmed in a way
0: you know i yeah i, I would not have expected that answer but hearing you talk about that i'm like i don't mean nora Ephron should direct my life yeah. <laughs> that's a really good answer I, I like that a lot
1: and a very good director too so
0: yeah well Can't go bad there uh listeners if if you uh are inspired by this conversation to share your own uh, picks for the director of your biography. Our mailbox is obviously still open. You don't have to not respond just because this episode is already aired. We love hearing from you. Uh, I already shared our email and Twitter account, so you know how to how to reach us. But it's a good question, a good way to get to know uh, each other's biographies and also each other's tastes. It's a great question, Sarah. Thanks for asking it.
1: Thank you.
0: And now it's time for the watchlist segment. This, of course, is the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host hasn't seen. We both watch it and then talk about it afterwards. So, Sarah, you had the the reins for this week's episode, mm-hmm. and you picked another Tarkovsky film. So uh, a while back, you picked Andrei Rublev mm-hmm. for, for me to introduce myself to. I liked it a lot. Great pick. Uh, you picked another one. This time it's uh, maybe even a more inaccessible Tarkovsky film that is even possible. It's his 1975 film, Mirror. And you were kind enough to lend me your Criterion edition of Mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is streaming for free on on YouTube uh, and, and legally, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can watch it that way, listeners, if you haven't watched it already. I got the good fortune of watching it on Blu-ray And also the good fortune of having Criterion's supplemental materials on hand for uh, post-film perusal. And I really liked how the back of the Blu-ray case summarized the film. So I'm going to let the Criterion writers do all the work for me when describing (laughs) Mirror. They call it a subtly ravishing passage through the halls of time and memory— Andrei Tarkovsky's sublime reflection on 20th century Russian history is as much a poem composed in images or a hypnagogic hallucination as it is a work of cinema. In a richly textured collage of varying film stocks and newsreel footage, the recollections of a dying poet flash before our eyes, his dreams mingling with scenes of childhood, wartime, and marriage, all imbued with the mystical power of a trance. And... I, I mean, like I said, I think that's, it's a great some summation of the movie. It doesn't really tell you what the movie's about. And I think that that's fitting because this is a movie where it's not really the point isn't to get at what it's all about, or Mm -hmm. at least that was my reaction to it. But I want to hear Sarah, you talk a little bit more about why you, you know, what you think of the film, the thematic tie in with memory is obvious with Armageddon time, Mm -hmm. um, but I want to hear you talk a little bit about how you find Mirror to be different in its approach to memory and how do those differences affect the way that you approach
1: it? Yeah, uh, great question. And I apologize for picking a, a genuinely difficult movie because this is a movie that I also find genuinely difficult and I love because it is genuinely difficult. I feel like um, Andre Tarkovsky talked about making movies as sculpting in time, like it's the name of his book. Um, It's how he referred to making movies. And I think mirror is probably the best example of that idea of sculpting in time more so than any of the other movies of his, at least that I've seen. Um, And this movie's approach to memory feels a little bit more recursive and realistic than any other movie about memory and about ones past than I think I've ever encountered like the, the problem with movies is that they are by nature very linear and very bounded by time and very often they're bounded by the dictates of a plot and Tarkovsky throws all of that completely out of the window. He's much more interested in assembling a group of images together in a way that is going to give you a sense of the feeling of what it is like to experience that memory as his characters are experiencing it. And that's very disorienting, especially in this movie where a lot of the characters in the poet's memories are played by the same people who play characters in the poet's life at that time. So there are multiple dual roles happening here. Um, The poet's ex-wife is played by the same woman who also plays his mother in the past. Um, His son is played by the same boy who plays himself in the past as well. And so you get kind of this doubling of this idea of what happened in the past is past, and yet it is still a very active force in life today and he's never going to tell you that outright he's not really interested in explaining himself or telling you what the point of his movie is but at the same time he does a very good job I think of weaving together images and poetry in particular it's a lot of the poetry that's that's quoted in this movie was poetry that was written by his father and is actually read by his father um, throughout the film and i think that he does a good job of drawing thematic lines in between the poetry and then the imagery on screen in a way that doesn't tell you how to feel about it but for me i think it i feel like i get a little bit of a sense of how tarkovsky felt to grow up in the USSR and how he felt very ambivalent and also very proud of where he came from. And so there's there's kind of another stealth tie-in to, to Armageddon Time here in that um, Armageddon Time is both a memoir and a v- deeply personal film, and it is also a movie about the effects of what our past and what the generations before us have done on us. And I think that mirror also gets at that in a very, very recursive way. So Kevin, I'm curious to know, did that recursion work for you?
0: So I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up, uh, there at the very end, the, um, the idea of how people from our past, uh, work upon us or the way our past works upon us, how it's a, a force that's in the past, but it's also, it's, it's somehow paradoxically always with us, even here in the present. Um, because the thing that, uh, and I, I liked this film. I don't know that I, I connected with it as strongly as as Andrei Rublev, probably just because it is so esoteric mm-hmm. and intentionally so that it's not the sort of film that you you know it's it's you know like an hour and forty five minutes. You don't just you know spend one hundred and five minutes watching this film and then come away and like no, okay I I understand this film and I will categorize it in a box and sort of know my thoughts about it and you know dust off my hands, move on. It's a film that demands that you really, not just watch it multiple times, but also you you need to you need to um, do the work with it, and um, I appreciate that about it. Even though, because by that very nature, simply watching it for the watchless segment isn't <laughs> probably going to allow me to appreciate it to its full ex- fullest extent. That said, I think that Tarkovsky's work just with Pure image is maybe the strongest of all the films of his that I've seen so far. I just there's so many individual images and sequences in this film that are burned into my brain. Um and uh getting back to the idea of, of things from the past working upon us, the common element between all of them is kind of this sense of there being an unseen mover mm. at work. In these images, so we get images of wind blowing across a field of grass. That's just incredible. It's like a, a an invisible ripple, just like a hand, an invisible hand, sort of just brushing its fingertips across the tops of this field. um There's a a scene where uh, a woman, uh, a relative of of a young boy, sitting at a table drinking tea, and she asks him to go answer the door. And when he comes back from answering the door, she's gone and the teacup is gone but the uh, condensation from the the warm cup is still on the table we watch and tarkovsky's camera holds on that as that uh, hot that warm spot just slowly disappears until it's completely gone um the the very first scene is sort of of a stutterer who's undergoing hypnotherapy to uh, to resolve his stutter and uh, Tarkovsky shoots it in a way that the shadow of the boom mic is visible on the wall. Yes. uh, Just capturing all of that. And it's just, there's so many things that speak of there being something unseen at work behind the scenes and how that is an essential part of memory. Like what, what guided us, you were talking about, you know, Nora Ephron, you know, uh, a charmed life, like things, seeming both out of left field, but also strangely inevitable. Mm. I think a lot of what we see in Mirror has that same quality where you don't really understand it as you're watching it, and yet you feel like it's capturing the texture of memory in a way that you can't articulate, you can only see and feel. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really appreciate that about this.
1: Oh my gosh, yeah. I love all of those sequences that you, that you talked about there too. And I, I think crucially... I don't know, this this is also a movie that I can't pretend to to know or understand or put into a box. I've seen it three times at this point. And every single time I watch it, I feel like I come away with a different image that has struck me. And I also come away with the understanding that I don't fully understand the context of this movie or what is possibly going on in Tarkovsky's head. And for the most part, I come away with those fleeting images And I don't remember a lot of the connective tissue. So every time I watch it, it kind of feels both very fresh and new and like a surprise and also at the same time kind of inevitable. Um, So it feels as though my relationship with Mirror is as though I am having a conversation with this movie stretched out over different instances of time. And it's always telling me sort of the same thing, but I'm coming at it with more experience, with better understanding. And so I I feel like every time I watch it, I, I'm almost like rising to the occasion of eventually being able to have like a conversation. I don't know between equals necessarily, but a, a better conversation with, with the film. And then as a result, also kind of with Tarkovsky. And that kind of feels as though it's, it's very intentional on his part. I really wish that he were a little bit less oblique, honestly. But at the same time, I appreciate that he's not going to explain himself. He's going to create art for art's sake. And the level of intentionality behind everything that he's doing on screen. All of the ways that he frames everything. Um, this is one. He's one of the few filmmakers where I can sit down and I can watch any of his movies and I can know that I am in the hands of a master because nothing feels like a mistake at all. Um, the level of intentionality is so much so that I feel like I can... Um, recognize a lot of the stuff that he's drawing on or playing with, like the imagery that he's playing with, without him having to directly quote it. So not only is he sort of doubling different roles throughout the course of the movie, but he's also doubling images from other pieces of mostly Western art. As well. So at one point, he actually quotes uh, Bruegel's um, Hunters in the Snow painting, um, which is a, a painting that I think he refers to again and again. It's definitely popped up also in um, Solaris, uh, his version of Solaris. Um, and then I think there's another image that to me feels like he's quoting a uh, girl with a pearl earring as well. Even though none of the imagery is exactly the same, you can still see a lot of kind of similar brush strokes, the same kind of color, the same sensibility of composition. And it doesn't feel like he's quoting it to say, I am as smart as this other artist. He's quoting it because that is piece of the makeup of his own artistic sensibility and it almost feels like he's paying tribute to that if that makes sense
0: and he he and he doesn't really be because he doesn't underline these references like i'm making reference and there's a specific thematic reason for me making this reference um he he really doubles down on the impression that he, he's not going to mollycoddle coddle you he's going to make an aesthetic object that is meaningful, but you're going to have to uh, invest in it in order to access that meaning, whatever it is. And I don't even know that he's supposed that he's really trying to make a specific meaning, he's just putting richly ev- evocative images on screen and allowing that to create a tapestry that can be considered.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> um, there, there's a uh, a line in the film that uh, I think it, it might be a line from one of uh, Tarkovsky's father's poems uh, where uh, he says, a poet is called on to shock men's souls, not cultivate idolaters. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's maybe a key difference between um, this film and a film like Armageddon Time. Not saying that James Gray is trying to cultivate idolaters, but uh a film like Armageddon Time is definitely trying to allow audiences to to really enter in emotionally into, into a film and, and and love it for what it reveals to them about either the filmmaker or themselves. Mm-hmm. Um whereas Tarkovsky is kind of much more about like something more spiritual than that uh something that isn't easily categorizable as a as an emotional experience it's aesthetic and you can have an emotional experience with that or not but it's kind of a lot of it depends on you and how the spirit in which you engage with his work and i feel like i don't know mirror is not a, an explicitly religious film but it feels like a very spiritual film mm-hmm. we talked about like you know the unseen mover obviously that just is God all over for me, mm-hmm. <laughs> but also just the way that the film just, it's not, it, it's, it's fully and only itself. It's not pandering to you. It's, it's not going to be anything else for you. You have to find it. And I feel like there's something of a di- of the divine mystery in that too, if I can get a little highfalutin about
1: it. I mean, I don't think that's highfalutin at all. I think that's exactly like, that's that's a lot of what I take away from from Tarkovsky as well. And I think a lot of it is him wrestling with the nature of belief and of unbelief and trying to assemble some sort of belief or meaning from all of these images, and then also coming to grips with... Um, the situation in which he is making a lot of he- these movies. So he he doesn't just quote um, his own father. He quotes a couple of other poets in here as well. There's a quote from Dante um, talking about wandering in a dark wood um, from the Inferno. But he also quotes a letter from Pushkin to Chadyev. Um, and that letter is a fairly lengthy passage, I think. But um, part of it talks about how um, – Russia was sort of severed from the rest of European Christianity um, during one of the schisms and how Russia is explicitly a Christian nation and yet also completely unrecognizable towards other Christians. And there's this sense of isolation and then also, I think, pride in that idiosyncrasy and then also dissatisfaction with the state of the country as a whole. And I think that Tarkovsky uses a lot of these words that that Pushkin is is expressing and his dissatisfaction with Russia, and then also his desire to not be from any other fatherland. Um, I think he's also using that to express his own dissatisfaction with being a a citizen of the Soviet Union as well. And I think a lot of what he's doing is trying to rebel from the strictures of the censors who, who wanted to control the movies that he was making and who also wanted to control the questions that he's asking. Because this is not a movie that is going to tell you explicitly what to say. It's going to raise a lot of questions and then ask you as the viewer to attempt to answer them and then to come away from... And then to come away from the experience with something, I think.
0: You, you have to wonder if almost that that was, in some ways an artistic survival strategy for Tarkovsky, because if you aren't uh, if you're making movies under a Soviet regime that has very specific ideas of what a movie must be, mm-hmm. then being the, the more oblique you can be about what you actually think, maybe the better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it it does, it does seem like when Mirror came out. It was not received warmly um, mm-hmm. by a lot of uh, the Soviet media and a lot of uh, Soviet authority figures, simply because it didn't it didn't have a point. <laughs> like it didn't try to express um, ideals explicitly. Although there are you can you can argue that there are some sort of um, you know pro Russian sentiments in there, obviously because Tarkovsky felt very strongly that he did like being Russian, um, but it's. Mirror is not – again, it's not trying to make a strong point about anything in particular or at least not something that a censor who's sort of like sitting and watching is going to access just by by like holding a clipboard, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of quality of, of Tarkovsky in some ways being almost defiantly esoteric <laughs> um, makes – it makes sense for him as an artist and also it – whether he kind of set out uh, at the dawn of his career wanting to be this way or whether it just sort of like he developed in that way unexpectedly, it just feels like it allowed him to engage in richer artistic explorations they might have otherwise. Mm-hmm. I would much rather have the the scene where his his mother is washing her hair in a basin and then sort of like stands up like the girl from The Ring mm-hmm. with her hair over her face and the plaster ceiling is falling all around her because it's completely sodden with water. I don't know what that means. I don't know what Tarkovsky is trying to communicate about his feelings toward his mother. I know it's a great image, though. Mm-hmm. I know that I want to see it again and just sort of contemplate it. And I think that'd be that's much preferable than a movie where... He kind of like engages in easy Freudian psychologizing of his past self and really tells us exactly what we should think of his mother, or at least exactly what he thinks of his mother.
1: Contemporary filmmakers take note, I think. Yeah, and, and I think that Tarkovsky is smart about not trying to talk about his past self or even talk to his past self. Um and he does so in in what I think is an oblique way, but it, it jumped out at me on this watch. Um, there's a scene where his mother is running through the rain to get to her job as an editor because she thinks that she's left a mistake in the print run. And if that mistake goes to print, then it's going to be an embarrassment. And... As she's tearing through her papers and then and then looking for the proof that she needs to make sure that that mistake did not, in fact, make it to print, um, it's kind of a futile thing that she's undertaking because her desk is piled high with papers and the presses are running and all of the other workers around her are telling her, like, there's, there's no point. We've already done the run, like what's done is done, and it's the run is printed. And yet she still goes and she tries to look for and examine that proof anyway. And she confirms for herself that the mistake wasn't there, but it was something that was going to be keeping her up at night. And that I think expresses the same sense of regret and guilt and shame that I think we all feel about our own past mistakes so much better than just replicating them on on screen it's just it's a beautiful image and I think her desperation and then her relief and then the argument that springs up from that sense of relief between her and a co-worker afterwards I think that expresses just so much more beautifully. And it's not even a metaphor. It's just an incident that happens to have resonance with something that you or I could recognize today. Um, And I think that that level of kind of – getting around to the point circularly without ever coming out and saying it is what i really really admire about what tarkovsky's doing
0: <laughs> so i mean th- this is probably just a me thing but my day job is an editor and i do have to do <laughs> proofreading so that was actually easily the most accessible part of the movie that was hashtag relatable <laughs> i like, have i know that feeling mm-hmm. very very well and i, I th- watched it i was like oh wow this this Became like a very very grounded realistic film all of a sudden. <laughs> um, but in, in seriousness, I do think that I, sequences like that are, are what makes this film I maybe so rewarding on repeat viewings is because it is a straightforward narrative section of the film, but it's not really connected to anything on either side of it. It's just it's like you said, it's an incident, and the reason it's in the film as opposed to a different incident is because it's supposed to draw forth associations from the viewer that can then kind of further get you into the mindset that Tarkovsky wants you to be in when contemplating time, memory, all these other very abstract concepts that you would think you wouldn't be able to portray literally in an image on screen. And yet he somehow manages to do that I don't know how, but that's part of the reason why he made the movie is because it shouldn't be possible, and yet he does it anyway. And that's that's cinema.
1: <laughs> it doesn't work in any other medium, for sure.
0: Well, listeners, that is our review, or at least our, our fumbling attempts of a review mm-hmm. of uh, Andre Tarkovsky's Mirror. If you had a chance to engage with this film, I mean, if there's – any movie that I would really love to get some some listener feedback on for our, our conversation segment. this would be the one because there's so much to talk about. There's so many possible different interpretations. There's so just so many different stories I'd love to hear about weird things that you noticed in the movie that like the proofreading story that just really hit you individually. There's just a lot of room for individual. Uh, idiosyncratic responses to this film and I'd love to hear more from it
1: we'll link to the movie in the show notes too so it, it will be easily yeah.
0: accessible it, it, it literally costs you nothing except an hour and 45 minutes so there's no excuse
1: and then maybe maybe your mental state afterwards depending on how you feel about it I mean
0: depending on how contemplating the vastness of time and memory affects you you know that might be something to consider as well but we'll leave that to your discretion we are going to be going back to something a little bit more populist a little bit more mainstream with our next week's episode. We are going to be reviewing uh, Black Panther Wakanda Forever uh, for the new release. And I figure like, you know, we need to also make room for just the fun popcorn movie. So Sarah, I'm finally going to get you to watch Joe Johnston's 1991 film, The Rocketeer. The comic book movie that might have been responsible for him getting the job of directing the first Captain America movie. I think The Rocketeer is just great fun and i i wish more comic book movies and superhero movies were like this one i'm
1: excited to watch this one i'm excited to catch up with it um i think that's a great connection to to the mcu at large um and i'm also really just looking forward to a movie that looks like it has incredible set design and a solid sense of hollywood history
0: oh man the the art deco stuff in this movie is so good the classic hollywood stuff is so good I can't, I, I, it's been a long time since I've revisited it and I'm looking forward to the excuse to revisit it again. So listeners, the Rocketeer is streaming for free on Disney plus. If you want to watch along, it's also rentable on demand on, you know, other streaming platforms like Amazon and and Apple. So there's plenty of ways to, to access it and watch it for yourself. And it's just a really good time. So highly recommend it. We'll be talking about next week. But that does it for this week. Seeing and Believing is, of course, brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is the fearless Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan.
1: I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week
0: on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at Christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay
1: Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.